Hey, if you guys were a part of uh, Conduit or been around Conduit, uh, this is my buddy Slavik, who he's not the pastor of the Russian slash Ukrainian church here in town, uh, because maybe he doesn't get paid to be, but I think you are a pastor whether or not. Because does God call you to do something or does he call you what you already are? Like I'm just calling this a table because that's what it is. So I'm calling Slavik a pastor because that's what he is. And if you were here uh, around last year, maybe spring, February, we had a big semi-truck parked out front. And the idea was we were going to load it up with stuff that needed to go to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who were being, whose lives were being destroyed in war. The reason we could do that is because of our friend Slavik. And he's here this morning because those goods, those blankets, those coats, those things that we sent are there just in time for winter. So tell us what's happening right now and a little bit of an update and a report. Well, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, when I signed up, said, God, yes, let's do something. Um, so to start, uh, my name is Vyacheslav Alekseevich Zadoyanchuk. Well... <laughs> People call me Slavic, Victor, they call me Baba, uh, they call me all kinds We're of names. We're going with Baba from here on out. <laughs> Forget Slavic, Baba. Yeah. So um, I'm here to come and to tell you a few words. Дякую or большое спасибо. Those are the words uh, in Ukrainian, thank you, and in Russian, thank you. Um, thank you, why? Uh, because, uh, uh, as you know, in Ukraine, there is a war going on between two brotherly nations, Russians and Ukrainians. I mean, crazy, I married a Russian wife, uh, you know? So, um, we are so close to each other, and all of a sudden, for what reason, I don't know, uh, there is a war. Through all this, there's a bad news. And there's a good news. Bad news is the war still goes on right now. Even though the media is not uh, portraying it right now, but the pastor uh, right now who are uh, going into the war zone with the humanitarian help that you guys send, blankets and clothes, warm clothes, he's a little crazy. Um, I mean, pastor, he's just stepped into eternity. He's like, I'm live or die. I'm still with Jesus. So he takes this help. And bravery and um, craziness is kind of the uh, fine line. I would just... Um, There's a fine line between insanity and genius, and he has erased that line. <laughs> well, uh, so he's uh, given it away not to the refugees only who have been resettled in our central part of Ukraine, but taking it to the war zone to those people who couldn't flee. Bullets still fly, explosives go off, people are in the trenches as we speak. So, craziness. But um, one thing I want to say uh, that you guys packed something in those boxes. That uh, you guys speak one language. If you don't speak Ukrainian or Russian, you, you fluently speak one language. And this is language of love. You packed Jesus in those boxes. You packed those two fishes that multiplied with Jesus. And instead of one container, we have a problem. We have a second container sitting here in Nashville because you guys got involved. 
We are not screwing around. (laughs) (laughs) We were, I was hoping maybe send a few things to Ukraine. I mean, I can't save the world. There is Jesus for it. But I thought whatever we can do to send a few warm blankets, we can do it. Then can do it, mission stepped in. And now we have a second container that is full, ready to be shipped. We're just looking for a little uh, money. But how much? Last container was $5,200 to ship. We have raised already uh, close to $4,200. So you just need a thousand bucks? Yes. Can we do that? <laughs> yeah, done. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm afraid of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were talking about something hard. Like, we could do that. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, so just here to say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, from the million Ukrainians in Ukraine who have been resettled for no reason, lost their livelihoods, lost lives. I can tell you a lot of horror story from the war, but I'm not going to. I just would ask you to pray. There's a five things. I mean, there's a mile long list of prayer requests. I'll tell you five things. Five is pray for the wisdom for those in power to stop the bloodshed. Second is pray for reconciliation so the hatred will not continue between brothers. Ukrainians and Russians, they are brothers. Um, Third is, um, what is third? Uh, Third is pray for the necessities of life like shelter, food, and access to medicines to be restored to the folks. Um, Fourth is peace. Peace for that troubled uh, nation right now. And I know only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can really bring that to them. And fifth is the container. Stop praying for it. You already fixed it. Mark that off the list. (laughs) As 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 a church... Yes. Uh, a church is just the ecclesia. We're called out, and we're called out to do stuff. Mm. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, Peter said, he does this guy just went around doing good. If that was, if Jesus had a business card, mm-hmm. I'm just, I do good on it. And so, we, uh, as a conduit, it's a, it's our great joy and our privilege to get to be a part of that. Thank to you. to love on some brothers and sisters that we may never get to meet this side of heaven. Um, but don't you know? Eternity. I mean, we have a long time. Imagine that campfire with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and Russian brothers and sisters as we sit around and celebrate and tell the war stories of the kingdom and not just the war stories of earth. I would uh, like for them to bring blankets to heaven so you will recognize yours. To recognize the blankets. Does yes. anybody recognize that one? <laughs> tell us about these little uh, poinsettia nuggets. This is just a little uh, thank you token that are uh, uh, here for us, uh, for you guys to remember. Red is the color of the blood that is being shared there. There is no reason for that blood to be shared. There is no reason. But there is one blood that was shared is Jesus who can come and heal the land and heal those people. So, please, Pray. I'm sorry. 
pray for those folks in Ukraine and Russia, please. I mean, we can send blankets, we can send some food and stuff, but the soul for them to be healed, for them to start reconciling together those wounds, only blood of Jesus can put them back together. Sorry, guys. Don't be sorry, man. Just pray for them, please. Stand and let's pray for them right now. We want to pray for them because what we see as news and we see as Twitter, these are lives. They have moms, they have names, they have grandmas, they have children and brothers and sisters. And even though you may not know them, Jesus does. So we want to pray right now for Lord, for, oh, for Slavik and his family. Thank you for the, the faithfulness of a man like Gideon who would stand up in the face of overwhelming odds and say, not on my watch. Thank you for the faithfulness of those who have given already and for those who will continue to give. We stand today in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in Russia and pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for the peace that passes understanding, for courage, for, for wisdom. And that, Lord, you would be glorified somehow in the midst of all of this, that you would be glorified. Thank you for allowing us to play such a small part in this big picture that you're writing and that you're painting, God. I pray for the, the powers that be. We lift up the leaders of Russia and of Ukraine and of America, Lord. That we pray for them that... You said the heart of the king is in your hand, and so we give them over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for being here. Slavic is part of a church of Russians and Ukrainians that meet here locally. A lot going on in your community in the kingdom of God right under our own, our own noses, and the Lord is allowed us to play a part in that. I'm just so grateful for that. And, you know, we'll get a chance to maybe at some point break it down, but just that's part of what Conduit was able to do this last year, letting money come from you and people around the country into the front lines of the kingdom. And we have Ukraine on that list. And that doesn't include, by the way, because I don't even know how you could do the math. I know that if we were good Baptists, we would have it all done on a spreadsheet and we would have quantified the... Not that there's anything wrong with it, but we just, we just, we're not very good at that. So we don't know how much money was donated when it comes to in-kind donations. It doesn't include any of that, and who cares? You know, at the end of the day, I don't know that God needs any more spreadsheets. He just needs more of us just being good and kind to each other. And so just know that that's part of the story of Conduit, and it's, it's part of your story as well for being here. Thank you so much. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 16. If you're visiting, I'm Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. And you have wandered into a scrappy little bunch of Jesus followers that we call conduits. And we just view ourselves as that, a conduit of his spirit. And when his spirit, he says, would come from within you, there would be like rivers of living water. And when water comes on, man, things change and get green and live again. And that's all we are as a conduit of his spirit. And sometimes when the conduit and the water comes in, it washes things out like money. And so that's what that is. And our gifts and our abilities are just washed in on that. John 16, 
in verse 20, this is Jesus talking. He says, truly, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Slavic, I think that's a promise for Ukraine and for you. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so, verse 22, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Father, would you give us insight into your word this morning? This time of Christmas, the time that you promised would bring great joy into this world. We ask for your word to bring light and, uh, and wisdom for all of us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. The promise of Christmas was a promise of what great tidings of, no, glad tidings of, of great joy. That was the promise that the angel gave of joy. I remember, uh, if you think hard enough, you probably could remember too a moment when you were a kid and you just felt so free and joy and just unfettered and not afraid. And for me, the memory that comes to mind immediately is dancing and skipping around. I might have been second or third grade. The front yard of my great-grandma Dunn's yard, we called her Mammal. Not even sure why. No one really ever explained that. But I was at great-grandma Bessie's house and caught fireflies. This would have been June or July in, in Nebraska, and the fireflies were thick. You know, the mosquitoes and the fireflies were what we really were famous for. And I had a jar full of lightning bugs, is what we called them. And so full that it like illuminated like the whole room when it was dark. And so for whatever reason, I don't even know why, what I remember is skipping around the front yard singing Joy to the World, <laughs> the Christmas song, letting fireflies go, <laughs> releasing light into the world. Third grade, feeling free and unafraid and my great-grandma was sort of like this. Um, my parents free-ranged us as children. You know what I'm talking about? They just let us go in the morning and assumed we'd get back by night, you know, and they'd do a head count and, and start again tomorrow. And So the one constant and stability in our world was my grandma Dunn, my great-grandma Dunn. Now, she didn't like a few things in this world for whatever reason. She didn't like gypsies. I don't even know why. But I remember that in like first grade, she'd talk about, and I didn't know who they were even, but whatever reason, that was not something that she really liked. And, and she didn't like that I buttered my bread uh, too thinly. Uh, you butter your bread like a bum, which is the other thing she didn't like was bums. So she, <laughs> you butter your, you got a lot of butter on your bread. I remember that, you know. But I also remember that she, that she loved Jesus. And we'd go down there on Friday nights, especially after school. We'd walk. It was about a walk, maybe one mile. I think our entire town was like a mile and a half. And we'd go down on Friday nights and watch. Uh, we had to sit through Lawrence Welk. But then 7 o'clock, one of us would get up, and we'd take the, the vice grip pliers and change the channels. And, and we'd watch The Incredible Hulk <laughs> and uh, The Dukes of Hazard. 
And uh, every, I was just every Friday night, it was, I guess it was the CBS lineup, I don't even remember. But it was this sense of stability and safety there. And so I skipped around letting fireflies into the world, and it was two months later that I got to go to the first funeral that I remember. It was my great-grandma Dunn. And it was the first time in my little world when all of a sudden everything that I thought was stable and safe wasn't. And I felt sadness, and I felt unfettered, I mean, un, un, uh, unmoored. I'd come, my life had come unmoored at that point. And when I think of joy, especially going into the Christmas season, the older you've been, you've been around long enough, you know that, hey, there are things that happen that, that absolutely upset the apple cart. That I can't, how do you say joy when this is happening in my life? How can I possibly ever feel joy again? You know, in our first uh, services, part of our family for, since this church began, and we've known him for years before that, we knew him when he was born, was little Matt LaRocca. The first funeral I ever preached was of our little 12-year-old buddy who it didn't turn out like it was supposed to turn out. How can you, when you've said goodbye, and some of you are like, man, that's me, I've, I've felt that sorrow. How can I ever experience the joy, the joy that Jesus promised, the joy of, of the world? Is it incongruent? Is it even possible? Or even worse, am I a failure? Because everybody seems so happy, but I'm so sad. And today, what I want to talk about is the joy that Jesus promised in John 16. And the way that I want to do it is really, hopefully pretty simply, and that's to break down that, you know, what is the, what is the definition of joy? Like, what does it even mean? When I'm talking about joy, are you talking about the same joy that I'm talking about? And oftentimes, for me anyway, it's helpful when I'm thinking about what something is, is for me to know what it isn't. So I want to talk about what is the opposite of joy. And then the third thing I want to talk about is the, what is the counterfeit of it? What's the fake version of it? Because I've done some fake joy, and some of you have too. And then I want to talk about how do we cultivate it? Like how does it actually, if it's a fruit of the Spirit that Galatians promises us. And if you remember, what do we say the fruit of the Spirit? Singular is love, right? But it's plural, love, joy, peace, patience. So I think that love is the fruit and that everything else is the expression, the experience of it. We talked about a few weeks ago that goodness is what God looks like. Exodus 33, when he said, I will let my goodness, I want to see you, Moses said, I'll let my goodness pass in front of you, he said. It's what God looks like. He's good. Kindness is what he acts like. And I think joy is what he tastes like. It's the taste of God. The taste of this fruit. And why would I say that, the taste? Because I'm reminded of a story in the book of John of Jesus handing out wine. Now this thing that Jesus did completely messes with my theology. Because what Jesus did was he gets into this party. Maybe Mary was the wedding coordinator, I'm not 100% sure. But in John 2, for whatever reason, when they ran out of wine, Mary goes to, they go to Mary and then Mary goes to Jesus. So whether she's the wedding coordinator, the caterer, or whatever, but for some reason, Mary seems to be in charge of the wine. And she comes to Jesus in John 2 and says, Master, we're out of wine. You've got to help us. And Jesus initially is like, what am, it's not my problem. That falls all the way under the list of not my problem. 
but it's his mom. <laughs> it's his mom. And that day, he calls for the servants. Funny, by the way, this is going to be his first miracle. If I'm Jesus, thank you for everybody. You're all well grateful that I'm not. But if I were, man, I would have just sashayed right into the temple and raised somebody from the dead and do a mic drop. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, why not? But he doesn't. Instead, he just gets to the servants. He doesn't even make like an announcement. Just get the servants. Nobody even knows that this is happening. Get these clay pots. There's 150 gallons of water that he asks her to fill up. Okay? He's not making a run to get some two-buck chuck. Like he is going for it. I'm looking for the laughs because I know who drinks wine in my church now. Hundred and fifty gallons. And here's what kind of messes with my theology a little bit. They're already happy, if you know what I'm saying. And he just makes them more happy. That's what Jesus did. And he didn't take credit for it. It says the disciples knew and they believed. That was a miracle for them. It was a miracle for mom. But Jesus, behind the scenes, poured this new wine, and I believe there is a picture of the new covenant in this. The old wine and the new, because what do they say? That usually the master of the party in John 2 says, he usually you just will save the old stuff for the end, because by then they're all so buzzed that they don't even know, but you save the best for last. It's a picture of new wine, but the wine in the scripture is a picture of joy. Jesus' first miracle was bringing joy to a watered-down marriage. He was bringing vitality and joy into the world. And when I think of what joy is, I've, first of all, was really uh, excited because I thought my whole life that joy and happiness were two different things. That happiness is what the world had and joy is what we have and joy is a choice. And those things we've heard and there's, there's truth in all of that maybe. But I'm looking through the scriptures and I can find no delineation is that in the scriptures. When he speaks of joy, he speaks of delight, he speaks of rejoicing, he speaks of joy. It's all the same thing. And I found, uh, instead of me trying to make up my own definition, I really like what John Piper said when he said that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. It's a feeling. It's not something that should be foreign to us. It is an actual feeling of joy inside of us. When he speaks of, in Psalm 30, that though you weep tonight, you will, there will be joy that will come in the morning. There's a changing of a feeling inside of us. And I think that that fruit, the reason that it's a fruit, the reason that it speaks of it as an actual, the taste of God, that's my Eugene Peterson of it, but it's, I think it's because it's who Jesus is. It's who God is. In the book of Proverbs, if you want to write it down and go later, in verse, chapter 8, in uh, verse 31, it actually is speaking of wisdom and all at the beginning. And at the beginning when the world was... Speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. 
right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the beginning, in verse 31 of Proverbs 8, it says that he rejoiced in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of man. And that word delighted is frolicking. It's daring, skipping around Grandma Dunn's front yard with fireflies, singing joy to the world. He was giddy about you and giddy about me rejoicing over you. That's what he said, Zephaniah 3, 17, that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. He's gonna rejoice over you with singing. There's the, at the core of who God is, is joy. And so, of course, from that, from God, you, a fruit of him inside of you, would be joy, right? It just makes total sense. Now, if joy is that feeling of joy and of happiness, some of you might be asking it right now, then why do I feel so sad? Why is it that I can't get past this loss in my life? Why is it that whenever I'm driving down the road and that song comes on that I think of him or I think of her? And I think that it's really simple, that the opposite of joy isn't sadness. If joy is the goal and what Jesus does in, inside of us, sadness, you would think, would be, well, we have to avoid that at all costs. I don't think that's true at all. I think at the core of who we are, as humans, as part of this human condition that we are in, sadness is part of it. Sadness is, a, is a, uh, an emotion that honors the, the love that we have for someone or something or the expectation of a way that it was supposed to be and wasn't. Sadness is the proper response to that. The Bible tells us that Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrow. Sadness was a part of who, what he did, how he felt. I think that he looks upon this earth and there's a part of God that still weeps he weeps over what's happening in Ukraine. That sadness, God is not Spock, some emotionless being. Sadness was a part of it, and it's a part of you as well. Sadness is not your enemy, and it's not the opposite of joy. When you think about a person that you've lost, especially during the holiday season, but you know that feeling, someone who's died and they moved on and and you're not supposed to be sad, right, because we're Christians. I shouldn't be sad about this. Or someone will say something extraordinarily unhelpful, like, well, I guess God just wanted another angel, you know. He, he just needed him there more than he needed him here. And you, all those unhelpful things that we say, all those unhelpful things because they don't help us to feel better about it. But doesn't it sneak up on you even years later? A movie or a song will come on and it'll just, oh, like a kick in the gut. And that kick in the gut, is something that the Bible talks about because the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, they didn't speak of sadness like every Chicago song ever written. I may or may not have broken up with a girl in the 80s just so I could listen to the Chicago Greatest Hits record. But it's all about your heart, right? Oh, my heart hurts. But in the Jewish people, in the Jewish culture, it wasn't their heart, it was their bowels is what it says. Genesis 43, Joseph it speaks of him weeping from his bowels. I think it's translated as a warmness in the, in, the, in the ESV version. I swear, you can read it for yourself. 
But it's actually, it means what you think it means. Because from your gut, if you've had a stomach virus, you know that's coming out one way or the other. Take a moment. <laughs> you can't unhear that. But that's, I'm just, that's, I didn't write it. I'm just giving you the, what the, the, the Bible says. That's what the Jewish culture thought of the seat of your emotions was your gut. And that's why it feels like a kick in the gut. That's why it feels like when you've lost someone and, you, and you're sad and, you're, and you can't even, it actually feels like a physical pain in your gut. The only language they knew to give it was Joseph wept from his bowels. It sneaks up on you. And to avoid it and to hide it, to try to lord over it, that's not the opposite of joy. If anything, there's a healing quality to it. It's part of the gift that he's given us so I can honor this love that I felt, this attachment. Even the disappointment, I can honor it with sadness. And so if the opposite of joy isn't sadness, what I would say it is, according to Romans 5, is hopelessness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Because those, Paul would say, 1 Thessalonians 5, that who have lost, for those who have gone asleep, we do not sorrow as those without hope. Now notice he didn't say we don't sorrow. If you are been around the church long enough, some people have actually probably told you that means I don't, I, why are you even sad? You know, you're going to see him again. That's not what Paul said. He says we sorrow, it's just differently. We sorrow as one who has hope. We sorrow as someone who says, you know what, I'm going to see you again, but I'm, it really sucks that I can't see you right now, and that makes me sad. And what hope allows us to do is to rub hope like a good, like a good rub on a, on a rack of ribs, like a good spice rub on your turkey. You're rubbing hope into the pain and allowing that flavor to dissipate. Hope bubbles up from within inside, and that hope is as someone who knows I'm going to see my mom again. Some of you have been in that room with your loved one as they passed on. It's, uh, it's the most awful and beautiful experience. I've, I, it's just amazing and awful and beautiful all at the same time. To watch someone breathe their last breath, but to know that I could just see it. It's not her anymore. It's not, that's just this tent. I just, it, was the, it became real to me. It was no longer an academic exercise. But am I sad? Yeah. But over time, did I become less sad? It's a magnet. Yes. In those first weeks after my mom passed, I went to Africa like nine days later. It was a trip I'd already planned, and I was raw. And, and there were moments in those days after my mom was the one that I would call like at midnight when I was on a long drive back from a trip or whatever because she'd be the only one up. Uh, and she was always up. She's a super night owl. And there were days and the weeks after where I'd look at my phone and at what point do I actually delete the number? You know, those questions you ask, at what point do I, you take the ring off if it was your spouse? What, those are questions that you don't really, you're not prepared to answer when you're in third grade skipping around singing joy to the world. But the longer you've been around, you understand that there will be loss, there will be trials, there will be tribulations, and it's okay to be sad, but then to allow joy to bubble up from the inside, to rub hope into the pain and allow joy over time. 
make it not as bad, to make it better. In the first service, I was Kim. I know there's musicians all over in here, but if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if, you're, if you have the skill, you spend a lot of time just doing it because you're supposed to, but there, was, there wasn't a day that all of a sudden you were there. It was just over time, after weeks, after months, after years, and before long, the musician who was doing those chords and those scales because they had to, they were trying to make themselves, before long it became just who they are, an expression. And I think joy in our lives really is about over time, you've been through this and you've been through that, and over time, before long, it's no longer a mathematical equation of joy. It's just you feel the sadness and you allow the, the joy to bubble up, and there's no recipe that says it's going to be right now or tomorrow, but you allow that joy, you rub hope into the pain and allow joy over time to bubble up. And if it's the opposite is hopelessness, the counterfeit of joy, the spray tan of joy, if you will. <laughs> See, is anybody orange in here? <laughs> if you spray tan your joy on, it wears off eventually. Part of my spray tan of joy was Norman Vincent Peale. All due respect. <laughs> If I'm just, if I think positive enough, then I won't get cancer or I won't have a cold or I won't have to be sad because I'm thinking like I don't. And what that did was it's this stoic thing that's really out of Greek culture, not out of the Bible, and saying, if I just don't think about it or just don't, or I just, I'm going to choose not to be sad, that doesn't, all that is, is literally like trying not to throw up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I went through a pretty long streak once of no puking, but when, I, like, I, when it comes to throwing up, I'd rather you come claw my eyes out. I will do anything it takes to not have to do that. But eventually, and isn't it, don't you all, the exact same thing? And I've been to Haiti enough times at this point. Once it's over, then I'm like, oh, I feel so much better. Cramming that sadness down inside of you is the equivalent of you just trying to not let it out. It's coming out one way or the other. It's coming out now or it's coming out 20 years when your life falls apart. Allow that sadness to come out and for the joy to well up inside. And don't counterfeit it by pretending that it's okay when it's not. You can also counterfeit it with the activities of this earth. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Surprised by Joy, which is a great book. It's the story of his life. It's the story of him discovering Jesus, and that's the title, Surprised by Joy. And he speaks in this chapter. He says, you might as well offer a mutton chop to a man who is dying of thirst as to offer sexual pleasure to the desire that I am speaking of. Joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. What he was saying and would go on to say was that there are many things in this life that we enjoy. And in the context of, of my marriage, in the context of the way that the Lord has designed us for relationship with each other, there is a joy, but it is a signpost on the way to the real joy. It is the blessing and not the blesser. And where we get in trouble is when I begin to treat my blessing as the idol. And what I mean by that is if my blessing is my job promotion or my company that I work at or my career. I'm going to that idol and saying, bless me, make me feel happy. 
And when it dries up, when you get that career, when you get to the top of the corporate ladder in the clouds, you look up above and just realize there's more ladder. It's the realization that it was never the blessing, but the blesser where I could get my ultimate joy from. My relationship with my wife, there are times when in our marriages where I want her to provide for me what only God was ever going to provide. Making her an idol and not letting God be the blesser and to worship him and to realize that on this road towards blessing, that joy is the ultimate goal. We're going for that. And these other things, all they are is a glimpse, a glimmer, a picture. But when I stop and camp out, like if I'm on a journey to a faraway land and I find a sign that says, hey, just 4,000 miles more to go. And I camp out at the sign just because I saw the name of the city. It's a very fleeting joy. And these joys, whether it comes from our career or from our relationships or for whatever, insert whatever thing that I'm trying to get joy from, it'll make me happy for a little bit, but it's fleeting and I got to keep going back to it. I got to keep going back to it. And so the counterfeit of joy is anything that I'm going to to find joy and completion and happiness that is not Jesus himself. And the question for me question for you really then is we know what it is we know what it's not we know what the fake version is how do I how do I cultivate it how does joy grow inside of me and if you've got your Bibles with you and I hope you do I would love for you to turn to the book of Jeremiah and I apologize because some of you haven't been there in a while but Jeremiah just find Psalms and turn right Psalms Proverbs Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. If you've gotten to like Habakkuk, you've gone too far. But I want to read something to you. Because there's a picture in this for the Moab people, the people of Moab, that's a picture for us. The book of Jeremiah, for the first 45 chapters, was a book written from a prophet to the Jewish people warning them. For those first 45 chapters, that's pretty much all it is, is, that, is the prophet Jeremiah warning. It's God warning Israel. But around chapter 45, he switches gears. He pops the clutch. And he switches to the Gentile nations. And in this is a picture for you and for I when he gets to the people of Moab. And he says in verse 11 of 48 that Moab, Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He's saying, Moab, this country, this Gentile country, you've had it easy. You are just like Darren, skipping around, letting fireflies go. You have no idea how this world can be. And you have settled on your dregs. What is a dreg? How many have had a Snapple in the last month or two? You know about the Snapple? And you know what happens when you go buy a Snapple from the store? You got to shake it up. And why is that? Because all the good stuff floats to the bottom. All, and you, you could pick it up and you could see it's just a, a bottle of orange juice that's been sitting for a few days. The pulp and everything is settled to the bottom. The dregs is in wine, the, the stuff that floated to the bottom, but not the good stuff. In fact, it's probably helpful to have a, a, a wine lesson of how wine was made in the days of Jesus. They would take, so have you guys seen, maybe you've seen this on the TV, people in bare feet walking around on grapes and squishing grapes in between their toes? Probably wash them, not 100%. And 
so they'd walk around, they'd squish the grapes with their bare feet, and from that they would make wine. And they would take that concoction and they would pour it in the days of Jesus into clay pots. Okay? And so what happens is the wine sits in this clay pot, and the winemaker, the artist, he or she would know at the exact right moment to come in because all the, the dregs had settled to the bottom. And they would come in at the right moment, dump it out into another clay pot and keep the dregs behind. And then they would let it sit again for days and weeks until again the winemaker would come in and dump it out again and again and again until the wine was perfect. And so it makes sense when he says, Moab has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. Now think with me. Wine of the, the joy of the Lord that is your strength. When he has poured it into you, the earthen vessel, you and I, this jar of clay, if you will, and I am enjoying my life. The joy of me is in the... And suddenly, and without warning, someone came and turned over my apple cart. I got fired. The relationship fell apart. I didn't get the promotion. This, he died and he shouldn't have. I thought he was going to make it. I, my dog got ran over. Whatever, the, whatever it is, your wine has been poured out. And it felt like someone came and kicked you in the gut. But maybe, just maybe, the maker of new wine has come into your life and said, I don't want you, Darren. I don't want the dregs of this life, the smell of this world, the taste of this world to be on you. And so I'm going to need to, from time to time, come and dump and pour you out. Not because he's angry. Because he loves you. In my heart, when I feel that sorrow, what it really did is it attaches me now to a place called heaven like I wasn't attached before. I long for a home that I didn't even know I longed for before. And when you're younger, it's okay that you don't long for it. You haven't been poured enough. There are moments of joy in our life when we're just full of joy and everything is as it's supposed to be. And then life comes and something happens and it dumps me out. And maybe this time I can look and see the loving hands of a winemaker who if I don't even understand, I can at least see that the hands that held that clay jar have holes in them. Because he loves me that much. Because what he really wants is for the joy of him to be in me and no more of the world. None of the dregs or the lees, depending on your translation that you're reading. So this Christmas, if you have been poured out this year, for the longest time in my life, I would say, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. Maybe this year I'm old enough and mature enough to say, no, Lord, pour me. Pour me. Instead of whining, I'm whining. 
I'm saying pour me a glass of joy today. The end of Jesus' life, he would pick up a glass and he would say, this is my blood. I'm pouring it out into you. At the end of Paul's life, 1 Timothy 4, he would say, I'm already being what? Poured out like a drink offering. And the drink offering in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, which was instituted in Leviticus, and interestingly enough, it didn't actually come into effect until they were in the new land, in the land of Canaan, in the land of the, the, the new covenant. But that, be that as it may, that drink offering was about a gallon of wine. And they would pour it on the altar. Because it was a drink for God. The image of I'm giving provision to God. I'm giving God joy. And so when Paul says my life is being poured out like a drink offering, what he's saying is my life is being poured out in a way that I am bringing joy to God. I am wringing myself out of the dregs and the leads of this world. And I am bringing joy to him. Joy to the world, for the Lord has come. My brothers and sisters, this week, some of you have been poured out and some of you are full. We're all at different places and we're all in different spots. And sometimes sorrow and joy overlap. Isn't that what Jesus was talking about with childbirth? You women that have born children, you understand that that is sorrowful. And even after babies out there, and look, I have none experience with this part of it, but I'm assuming that when you're holding that beautiful little baby, you're probably still hurting a little bit. <laughs> but joy overcame the sorrow because a life was being born, because wine was being poured out and your dregs were being... Today, this week, let's hold up our lives as a drink offering to the Lord, knowing that even if it's poured out, it will be filled up again. And when sorrow and joy overlap... When pain hits you, maybe this week it's already hitting you, maybe rub a little bit of hope on it this week and allow joy to overcome it. Does this make sense? Would you stand and let's pray. Father, give us insight this week into what joy really can mean for us. And for me personally, Father, for those circumstances that I'm looking to to bring me joy, of course they're not going to bring me joy. Let me not camp on the blessings, but continue my journey towards the blesser, not trapped in sorrow, but just allowing hope to be rubbed into it, and over time the salve that heals it, bringing joy that bubbles up from inside of me. And as a church family, Lord, it's my prayer that we, as we are poured out individually and corporately in the moments of being poured that we understand that you are just washing the, the disgust and the, the, the dregs out of us. Allow us to see that so clearly. Not as an academic exercise. It won't work there, but in our hearts. Would you download that into our hearts, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. It's in the nature of who you are, your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. <sighs> Joy to the world. <laughs> Do we have any announcements?
please don't forget these when you go today. Put them in a prominent place in your home to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And while we're at it, maybe it reminds us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq and in Syria, those that are being persecuted and crushed, that this bread, let it speak of the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs and the blood of Jesus. Let that be center of your tree this year. Cool? God bless you guys.